We'll be talking about the authority of Scripture uh, this morning uh, as we continue to work through just a, a basic bibliology. That is, what is our what is our doctrine of Scripture, or what are the various doctrines or beliefs that we can have about Scripture? What does Scripture say about itself? And so. We've kind of laid the foundation of that with inspiration, and we talked about how everything else that we're going to be uh, addressing in terms of the attributes of Scripture uh, is somehow related to what we believe about inspiration, uh, that it's the foundation that everything else is built upon. And so today we get to one of the implications uh, of Scripture, and that is that it is uh, authoritative. And... So take a second and uh, just uh, circle up with someone around you and uh, discuss this question. How would you define authority? If someone were to ask you, how do you define that word? What is authority? Take just a minute, uh, discuss that with someone around you, and we'll come back together. All right, so what is uh, authority? For the, the sake of giving kind of a succinct a uh, clear uh, response or definition to that, uh, I would say authority is the power or the right to control or command. The power or the right to control or command. There are all kinds of nuances you could bring out in uh, a definition that's a bit more comprehensive or exhaustive than that. But in general, authority is the power or right to control or command. So that's kind of two aspects. There's the right to do something and then also the might uh, to do something. And, uh, and so... Do you think that we as fallen humans enjoy, do you think the words control and command have positive or negative connotations? Negative connotations, right? Even some of us as uh, regenerate uh, persons still do not like the concept of authority. We still do not like to be controlled. We do not like to be uh, commanded. So we are by our very nature as sinners and even as uh, saints, still with the residue of sin, we are still hardwired in such a way as to be suspicious or skeptical of authority. And not only do we have this kind of hardwiring, but also probably most of us have some sort of experience with unjust or oppressive uh, authorities. We have seen authority be done in a way that is less than helpful, less than edifying, less than uh, encouraging, and so forth. We might have uh, had an experience with a uh, bad police officer. If you were here for my sermon last week, I shared the story of how a police officer perjured himself on the stand in order to give me uh, a ticket. So you might have had a, a bad experience with a particular uh, authority, authority figure uh, that uh, was unjust. You might have had an unjust boss. You might have had uh, an abusive uh, father or mother or whatever it might be. So not only do we have this just sort of natural skepticism, this natural suspicion about authority, but in addition, we have all experienced less than perfect views of uh, authority. So when we come to a question of authority, we're hardwired to have some degree of suspicion and hesitancy. And that especially plays out as we look at our doctrine of Scripture and we consider God's authority coming to us through the medium of Scripture. And so today we're going to be talking about not authority just in general, but the authority in particular of this book, the authority of the Bible. And so here is a definition. What do we mean by the authority of Scripture? This is from <laughs> Wayne Grudem. We've talked about him before. Probably has the best systematic theology book that you can get. 
And, uh, and what he said is, the, the, the authority of Scripture is the idea that all the words in Scripture are God's in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. I'll read it one more time because it's important. The idea that all the words in Scripture are God's in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Let me read you what a couple of others have said about this topic. The authority of the scriptures is the great presupposition of the whole of the biblical preaching and doctrine. I have no idea who said that. I found it online. It, that is the authority which comes from the Bible itself, calls for instant and unqualified acceptance of every statement of the Bible on the part of man. To ignore, disregard, or reject any doctrine of the Bible is rebellion against God's authority and will not go unpunished. John Stott said this, belief in the authority of Scripture and submission to the authority of Scripture are necessary consequences of our submission to the lordship of Jesus. And then Augustine said, what Scripture says, God says. I like that. What Scripture says, God says. So what are some of the various authorities that you have had in your life? Just name a few. Parents. Spouse, yeah. A boss. Teachers. Police. The law, you could say. God. Scripture. All kinds of different things that you could throw in there. And what we're really trying to do as we talk about the authority of Scripture is we're trying to, to have a framework for understanding when two different sources of authority collide, when two different sources of authority are in conflict, how do we decide which we are to follow? So imagine this scenario. Imagine that you work in the corporate world, and you're in a meeting, and in that meeting, uh, <laughs> you have a number of interns in the company, uh, and you have a number of peers then you have uh, a couple of vice presidents, and then you have the CEO, all right? It's pretty easy in that scenario for us to all begin to create some sort of hierarchy of authority and understand when push comes to shove, who has the final word, all right? Because there are very clear levels of authority, and, uh, and so in most areas of life, prioritization for us is fairly intuitive. It's fairly easy for us to understand when two sources of authority are in conflict, which we are to follow. But that's what we're trying to answer when we are answering the question of the authority of Scripture. You see, Scripture is always going to be at the top, no matter what our hierarchy is, no matter what our situation, no matter what our context is, Scripture is always going to sit at the top because God himself always sits at the top of all hierarchies of authority. And so if Scripture is God's word, then Scripture itself is going to sit as our ultimate authority. It's not the sole authority. It's not the only authority. We'll talk about that in regards to one of the distinctives of the Reformation uh, whenever we get to uh, that in a few weeks. It's not the only authority in our life, but it is the norming authority. It is the uh, ultimate authority uh, for uh, us. That's why when uh, Zach was talking last week about canonicity, that image, you remember the, the original word, uh, canon, what did, it, uh, what did it indicate? 
It was a measuring reed, right? And it was something that you would use and you would measure other things. You would measure the depth of a river. You would measure the length of something, whatever it might be. Scripture is that for us. Scripture is the measurement. Scripture is the final word for us. It's the ultimate authority uh, for us. Every other authority in our life has, to some degree, uh, a level to which we don't have to submit to it, all right? Because there could be something that is in competition uh, with that. So your parents, your mom tells you to go clean your room, you do it. Your mom tells you to go next door and to sacrifice a cat uh, and to uh, worship this false god. You don't do it, right? Uh, the government puts up a sign that says the speed limit is 45. You should do that. Most of us don't, but you should do that. The government puts up a sign that says you shall not worship Jesus. You don't do that, right? But scripture has no but. There's no, in this circumstance, I'm not going to obey scripture. All other authorities in our life have a certain ceiling for them. Scripture has no ceiling uh, for us because it is the ultimate authority. But that's unfortunately not the way the vast majority of people, even the vast majority of evangelicals, probably think about the topic of Scripture. I can't tell you how many times I've sat across the table from someone who was wrestling with the decision whether or not to divorce their wife, for instance. And they say, I know what scripture says, but the point of what we're talking about today is there is no way to finish that sentence that should have any consequence whatsoever. There is no but. What scripture says is what God says, and what God says is to be absolutely and in all cases carried out. There's nothing else, there's no competing authority with which to balance out or to negate what scripture says says. And so what happens is for a lot of us, we get into trouble because we have this existing view of authority. And that existing view of authority is that authority exists because I have given it authority over me. I decide when I'm going to stop at the stoplight. I look around. If there's a police officer sitting right there, I stopped. If there's not, I keep going. I decide whether or not I'm going to speed. If there's a police officer around, maybe I'll slow down. If there's not, I speed up. And what happens is we have this existing view of authority as being a helpful suggestion. We take this existing concept and then we apply it to Scripture. And what we need to do is we need to kind of reverse that. We need to have the, the biblical concept of authority, the biblical concept of Scripture's authority, and then read that back onto our lives instead of reading our own lives onto the doctrine of Scripture. And so <clears throat> let's talk about what does Scripture say about itself. What we're doing is the work that is called systematic theology. That's what we've been doing over the past few weeks. That's what we're going to continue to do for the next few weeks. In essence, what we're doing is we're laying out a case laying out a case for these particular doctrines as they develop in Scripture. We don't have, for instance, one particular passage that would say something like, God is triune. We talked about the uh, triunity of God the uh, last semester, and we saw how we can build this defense on the basis of these other evidences of Scripture. In the same way, there's not just one text that we look at that says scripture is authoritative. Instead, we're looking at all the evidences, right? So some of you guys uh, know I love 
like legal dramas and so forth. I told you last week I was pre-law. I love that kind of stuff. Casey and I have been watching uh, The People versus O.J. Simpson and, uh, and just kind of getting back into, Casey was seven whenever that uh, actually happened. I was 17, so I remember the vast majority of uh, the trial and just the, uh, the craziness that existed in our culture. And, uh, and there are things as we're watching this, uh, not documentary, but show about the trial that I forget all of these different pieces of uh, evidence that I didn't uh, know before. So what we're going to do is hopefully most of us have a pretty good understanding of the evidences. Most of us walk into this room thinking scripture is authoritative. Tell me something I don't know. But what we're going to do hopefully is kind of go through the evidences again so that we can be more and more encouraged in our belief and more set in our beliefs in regards to kind of a comprehensive, complete view of what we mean about uh, these topics. And so <laughs> in order to do this for the authority of Scripture, there are kind of, this is a, a syllogism. A syllogism is a, a, an inference that we draw from a couple of premises. And, uh, and so the first premise that we have is that God is authoritative. This is pretty much what we're going to do uh, today is we're going to make an, an effort to uh, defend this statement here. God is authoritative. Scripture is the word of God. Therefore, Scripture is authoritative. God is authoritative. Scripture is the Word of God, and therefore, uh, Scripture is authoritative. Obviously, we won't have time to be exhaustive in our studies, but kind of giving you, in general, these are the areas that you would uh, seek to uh, look at and prove and demonstrate and defend as you're building this doctrine uh, of clarifying what we mean by the authority of Scripture. So let's talk about the authority of God uh, first. In some sense, in some sense, any attack on the doctrine of uh, Scripture is itself an attack on the doctrine of God. Anytime that we come to Scripture and we uh, make an attack on it, an attack on our bibliology is really an attack on our theology. It's a, an attack on God and his character himself. For example, if I were to say the Bible is not true, what does that imply about God? That God can speak lie, right? That God can speak lies, that God is not faithful, that God is uh, not trustworthy. If I say the Bible is unclear, that is to impugn God's ability to speak clearly. If I say that the Bible contains scientific or historical errors, that implies that God is not omniscient, that God wasn't aware of some of these things that existed. So if I say the Bible is not authoritative, in essence, the implication is that God himself is not uh, authoritative. But the Bible is going to begin, the great presupposition of the Bible is the authority of God. The Bible begins with the authority of God on display as God does what in Genesis? He creates the world an example of authority. He speaks into nothingness and creates uh, the world. And so if we were going to try to demonstrate or prove <laughs> the authority of God, again, that's something that everybody in this room probably to some degree is gonna come in and simply just accept on face value. But if we were going to really dive down deep and explore what do we mean by the authority of God and how do we demonstrate it, we would do... Uh, the work of systematic theology. You would look at what scripture says about God's authority over disease. What does scripture say about God's authority over death, 
over demons, over disasters, and on and on you could go. All of those things are building a case. All of those things are little pieces of evidence, little blood drops, little gloves. All of these things are little pieces of evidence that are building a case. You could spend hours uh, discussing uh, God's authority, uh, passages that speak of God's sovereignty and dominion, <clears throat> but for the sake of time, we won't look at all of those. Instead, we'll look at this passage that's going to be kind of a, a framework for us. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we call this the Great Commission. Jesus uh, came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of other passages that you could look at that show Jesus or the Father or the Spirit or the triune God in general uh, exercising dominion, sovereignty, authority. These are all different ways. Even the language that we use as we talk about the, the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. Even that implies authority. What is it saying? That God is a king. And what does a king do? He reigns. And what is reign but the right to control or to command? There's a scene. Have you ever seen uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Have you ever seen that? There's a scene where uh, King Arthur comes upon some peasants. He comes upon some peasants, and he has this discussion there. Um, and if you haven't seen it, Monty Python's kind of satirical. And, uh, and he comes upon these peasants, and he has this long discussion with them. But at one point, uh, he says... <coughs> Uh, he says to this, uh, to this woman, he says, be quiet. And, uh, and she responds and, uh, and says, uh, who do you think you are to order me to be quiet? And his response is, well, I am your king. And she says, I didn't vote for you. That's how most of us tend to think of uh, the concept of authority. We tend to think of authority as being something that we grant. I grant you the right to be an authority over my life. And there are a lot of realms in life where that is the case. I take a job. By virtue of taking that job, I'm placing myself under the authority of someone who would not inherently or innately be uh, an authority over me. All right? I change countries. Uh, I change citizenship. I move from, uh, you know, England to uh, the U.S. And so, therefore, I put myself under uh, the Constitution and the authorities. Uh, here, that's how a lot of us think of the concept of authority as something that we give to somebody else. I give you the right, I give you the might uh, to be uh, an authority over me, because most authority is <laughs> going to be delegated like this. Government officials have authority on the basis of the fact that we have voted them into office, and on the basis of the Constitution, and uh, so forth your boss's authority because you voluntarily took a job. But God's authority is not like that. God's authority is not like any other authority. God's authority doesn't arise from outside himself. God's authority doesn't arise on the basis of something that we give to him. The most common word for, uh, Greek word for authority is exousia. Exousia, which is formed from two words. Uh, the uh, first one is a preposition, mean out of or from 
That's what ek means, out of or from. And then usia, which is a word that means nature. It means being. God's authority comes out of his very being, comes out of his nature. It derives from within, not something that is imposed upon him, not something that is granted to him. It's something that simply comes from him. (coughs) It's inherent authority, not inherited authority. Get the difference there? I have some degree of authority over Casey on the basis of the fact that we have gotten married. Before we were married, I had no authority over her. I inherited that authority. God doesn't inherit authority. He has inherent authority. He has innate authority that arises uh, from within. There are various ways that we would understand this authority as rising uh, from within. First one, on the basis of creation. We talked about that before, Genesis chapter one, that God creates. On the basis of the fact that God has created, therefore, God has authority over it. The potter has rights over the clay. God made it, and therefore, he has the right and the might to declare uh, what to do with it. Not only does God have authority on the basis of his creation, but also on the basis of redemption, that God has redeemed, especially uh, those of us who love and trust Jesus, that God has redeemed us. He has purchased us. And by virtue of the fact that he has purchased us, he has authority over us. You could also continue to build a case for why God has authority on the basis of some of the attributes that we see of him in scripture. For (laughs) instance, his omniscience. What does omniscience mean? He knows everything. He's all-knowing. And, uh, <clears throat> and so there's nothing that he doesn't know that would in any way invalidate his authority, that would in any way limit his ability to compel or to control or to command you to do something, all right? So all of us, none of us in this room are omniscient. And so any of us that have some sort of uh, an authoritative position over uh, somebody else our authority is to some degree corrupted or to some degree uh, there's a ceiling to it on the basis of the fact that we're not omniscient. So if, uh, if a parent tells their kid to go clean the room, not understanding that there is a venomous snake in that room or something like that, that's going to compromise their ability to make that uh, command. But God has no compromises in his knowledge God knew all of the circumstances uh, uh, before he uttered his command. Not only is he omniscient, but he's also omnipotent. In other words, there's no power that can withstand his command. So you have creation, you have redemption, you have his omniscience, you have his uh, omnipotence, and so forth. And on and on you could go with how all the different attributes of God are going to speak to the fact that he has this innate, inherent authority over uh, his creation and, uh, and so the first two characteristics there, creation and redemption, stress sort of his uh, right, and, uh, and then the second two, his omniscience and his omnipotence kind of speak to his uh, might, that he alone is competent to have ultimate or absolute uh, authority. And so most people, when they come to the doctrine of the uh, authority of Scripture, they reject it, not because it's not provable, not because it's not defensible, but because they've long since rejected the authority of God himself. <laughs> and it's not just a generational thing. Hopefully you see that. 
Hopefully we don't, uh, we don't come and think this is just something that is true of millennials or Gen Y or Gen X or something like that. It's true of every generation. Whether you're a baby boomer or you were born in the 1800s or 1700s or 1600s, all of us have this innate suspicion of authority. All of us have this problem with authority that arises from within by virtue of our being um, associated with, his, with Adam and his uh, sin. And one of the interesting things is you can kind of track, if you look at uh, history, you can kind of track uh, how it is that we've kind of ended up where we are today. Because I think if, if we would all look at where we are today, there is a, a, an, an amazing cultural shift as it relates to authority where more and more and more we are seeing in our culture the evidences of anarchy. We're seeing the evidences of what would be called autonomy, the idea of, of the self being uh, the ultimate uh, authority. So I kind of want to paint with a broad brush here and look at a little bit of a historical analysis to help us kind of frame where we are now. So historically, you had four main sources of authority. Historically, you had four main sources of authority uh, as it relates to kind of understanding right and wrong, morality, those sorts of things. The first one being revelation. Revelation that is something that has been revealed from uh, without, whether that is from uh, Yahweh, if you're a, a Jew, <laughs> or from Baal or uh, the Greek gods or whatever it might be. Just in, in general, mankind has always held uh, revelation as being a, a source of authority. The second one being tradition. Tradition has always been seen as a, a source of authority. We'll talk uh, in a few weeks about how tradition and revelation play off of uh, each other. A third category or source of authority being feelings or experience and the fourth one being uh, reason. What, what happens, interestingly enough, in the 16th century, as we get to this major world-shaping cataclysmic event that is the Reformation, uh, what's happening there is at this point in time, tradition has assumed the, the, the primary place over revelation as being our ultimate source of authority. We'll, uh, we'll examine that more in depth. Uh, but in effect, what had happened is within the Roman Catholic Church, tradition had, been, had taken the, the uh, sort of role of uh, the primary uh, authority. What the Reformation attempted to do was to rightly reverse that order so that uh, revelation is above tradition. What unintentionally happens, though, is there is this uh, increasing suspicion of tradition and in a large number of cases, especially with a number of denominations that develop out of the, the Reformation, there is this rejection of tradition completely. So now no longer do you have tradition as being in a number of uh, Protestants' uh, <coughs> views of authority, uh, being authoritative. Instead, you now are left with just revelation, feelings and experiences, and reason. Well, something happens two centuries later, and that is the Enlightenment. And in the Enlightenment, there is this growing awakening to the, uh, the marvels of science and so forth, and this rejection of the idea that we would even need something like revelation. We don't need something from without of ourselves. We have science. We have modernity. 
We have intellect and so forth. And so there is this rejection of revelation, which means culturally now we're left with two sources of authority, feelings and experiences and reason, rationale, logic, and so forth. Two centuries later, roughly, we have another major cataclysmic movement, and that is the movement of postmodernism. You see, there is this... this uh, idea that develops within the modernist thinking that science, that knowledge and so forth is going to save the world. Some things happen though uh, in the beginning of the 20th century that really begins to shake that foundational trust. What major things happen in the beginning of the 20th century that might make us think, you know what? The world's not getting better. World War I and World War II right? All of a sudden, we begin to see knowledge, science, and so forth might not be the answer after all. In fact, most of the world is destroyed as a result of this growing understanding and so forth. So we have a rejection then of reason. And what are we left with? There's no revelation. There's no tradition. There's no logic. What are we left with? Feelings and experiences, That's where we are today. Those are the cultural trends that have taken place to leave us where we are today. You get on the internet, you read blog comments and so forth, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing truth that is untethered from any other source of authority other than uh, the self. And what we'll talk about as we go along through the next few weeks and so forth is the importance of revelation, the importance of scripture because of all of those sources of authority, it's the only one that isn't tainted by man. Tradition, there's an aspect of man in there. Feelings and experiences, obviously there's an aspect of man. Reason or logic, obviously there's an aspect of man in which we are trying to interpret what is reasonable and rational and so forth. This is the importance of the authority of scripture for us to get us back to something that takes us out of ourselves, that arises not from within ourselves, but from within God as a source of authority uh, for us, which is why it's important for us to really dive down into the authority of scripture. So we have the first premise that God is authoritative. The second premise upon which the authority of scripture rests is the fact that scripture is the word of God. We spent an entire week talking about this. What's the name of the doctrine uh, that we talked about that says that scripture is the word of God? Inspiration, inspiration. Remember that word uh, in the middle there, spiration, like respiration, it's been breathed out. Inspiration is the doctrine that scripture is the word of God. It's the breath of God. It's the very words of God. Without a clear conviction that scripture is the word of God, you can't make this inference. (laughs) You can't demonstrate that scripture is uh, authoritative. You can't uh, have a clear conviction that scripture actually should compel or command us. So how do we know that the Bible is the word of God? We talked about this in inspiration. Some of the main texts to look at, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. Older translations, all scripture is inspired by God. <coughs> or Second Peter chapter one. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place 
until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, <clears throat> these doctrines here, the, an understanding of the inspiration of Scripture is the foundation for us upon which we build our house on bibliology. And your bibliology is only so strong as your doctrine of inspiration. So you see, what we might want to do if we were going to talk about the authority of Scripture, uh, imagine that you're going into a house, you're looking at a house, you're having it inspected because you're considering buying it. You go in and you see this crack in the wall. And you go outside and you look and you see a few cracks in uh, the foundation. There could be a thought in you in which you say, I'm going to just patch this crack in the wall. Is that the best way to handle it though? No. Why? Because you're just simply dealing with the symptom and not with the root. The root is there's a crack in the foundation. That's what must be addressed. And so when we have these uh, suspicions about the inerrancy of Scripture, about the authority of Scripture, about the sufficiency of Scripture, about the clarity of Scripture, about the necessity of Scripture, all of these different uh, sorts of things, the best thing that we can do is go back to the foundation. The best thing that we can do is go back to our understanding, is this truly the Word of God? If it is truly the Word of God, then we can begin to uh, repair that wall and so forth. But first, we must make sure that the foundation isn't faulty, because if the foundation is faulty... <coughs> Everything that's built upon that foundation is going to be faulty. So the greatest thing that you can do, the greatest thing that I can do as we want to build this robust, complete, comprehensive doctrine of Scripture is for us to really come to a point where we trust and treasure that this is the Word of God. But some would say that our argument here is uh, circular, that we're saying scripture is the word of God because scripture says it's the word of God. We've talked about this a little bit before, I think in a Q&A after one of our sessions. Does that make sense? It's circular reasoning. You say scripture is the word of God because scripture says it's the word of God. What do we do with that? Is that circular reasoning? Well, first, what we want to understand is all appeals to authority are to some degree going to be uh, circular <coughs> because what you're doing is you're basing your claim of authority on the authority of something that you're presupposing to be authoritative. For instance, if you were to say, reason is my ultimate authority, so everything has to be reasonable to me, everything has to make sense, everything has to be, in my mind, logical, what are you presupposing? That reason and logic is the highest good, right? But that's just a presupposition, for you. That's not something that you're demonstrating. That's not something that can even be proved on the basis of reason. And so you're presupposing that reason should be your ultimate authority. That's the nature of all appeals uh, to authority. If you could prove that the Bible was the word of God by something other than the Bible, then whatever you use to prove that the Bible is the word of God would actually be more authoritative than the Bible. Does that make sense? Whatever you use to prove something is your measurement. That's your measuring stick. If you have a, a ruler and you want to prove that it's exactly 12 inches, and so you go and get another ruler, what are you saying? I trust that ruler more than this ruler. And so that's the nature of all appeals to authority. We see that even in Scripture. 
<clears throat> there's a really interesting passage in Hebrews chapter six, which says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. He had no one greater by whom to swear, so he swore by himself. There was no authority that God could say, I swear on the basis of this. I swear on the temple. <clears throat> I swear on the, uh, you know, the, the grave of my dead mother or whatever you see in movies and so forth. There's nothing greater than God that he can swear to, and so he swears by himself. In the same way, there's nothing greater than the Bible that could prove the Bible. So in some sense, it is circular reasoning, but only insofar as all appeals to authority are uh, some, uh, somewhat circular. What this means is that we believe that Scripture is self-attesting. You heard that phrase before, self-attesting? It attests to itself. If the Bible really is the Word of God, there cannot be a higher authority, which means that we need the Spirit to affirm all of these doctrines that we're talking about. We need the Spirit's help to awaken us to these doctrines, to help us to understand, to help us to embrace, to help us to believe these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. <clears throat> the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Or Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It takes the work of the Spirit for us to understand this is the word of God. For us to see the, the beauty of this syllogism. For us to understand the inference on the basis of uh, the premises. Westminster, um, a really helpful catechism uh, says this, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. In other words, there's all kinds of ways that we could prove this is the word of God. All right, that's, that's all that that said in uh, sort of old English. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So step one, first premise, God is authoritative. Second premise, Scripture is the Word of God. On the basis of these two premises, we draw this inference that Scripture itself is <laughs> authoritative. And that's the way that the prophets, that's the way that the apostles, that's the way that they talk about their own writings and so forth. Thus says the Lord, hundreds upon hundreds of times in the Old Testament, that was the way that the prophets spoke of God's commands Thus saith the Lord. In other words, this is authoritative. This is a command from God himself. Thus says Yahweh. Thus says the king. Luke 24, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, a failure to believe what the prophets have spoken means that you're foolish. We talked about in our definition 
that the uh, authority of uh, Scripture means that, to, uh, that the, the Scripture is the Word of God in such a way as to disbelieve or to disobey them is to disbelieve or disobey God. Paul writing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, <clears throat> we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. 1 John chapter 4, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and spirit of error. And the result of that is that failure to believe or failure to obey the scripture, we see that often resulting in punishment in scripture itself. Deuteronomy chapter 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. That phrase there, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him and whoever does not listen, uh, I will require it of him. That assumes the authority of the prophet and the prophetic word. Second Thessalonians chapter three, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. In other words, again, the authority of scripture. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse six. Now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Hebrews chapter two, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. So over and over and over throughout the scriptures, you're going to see the scriptures not only are going to uh, make this sort of uh, argument that scripture is authoritative, but it's going to uh, prove the, the, these premises. It's going to prove that scripture itself is authoritative for us in such a way that to disobey or disbelieve scripture is to disobey or disbelieve uh, God himself. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12? We've talked about this passage uh, before. Again, that was in a Q&A and so forth, but it's an important one for us to wrestle through just to make sure that we are all on the same page as what's going on there and what's not going on. <coughs> well, someone reads 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 12 for us. So what a lot of people want to do when they read this is they want to kind of create a canon within the canon. They kind of uh, want to have this red letter Christianity. The things that Jesus says are really authoritative. The things that Paul say, eh, kind of semi-authoritative or something like that. That is not at all what Paul is meaning here. When he says, not I, but the Lord, or not the Lord, but I, all he's simply saying here is, I am, in the first instance, not I, but the Lord, in other words, Jesus specifically talked about this. When Jesus talked about divorce and, re and remarriage, when he talked about it in uh, Matthew 19, when he talked about it in Luke 16, when he talked about it in Mark 
10 and so forth. I'm just simply repeating what Jesus said. But when he says, not, uh, I, not the Lord, what he's saying is Jesus didn't specifically teach about this particular circumstance. So now I'm going to give you not my opinion on the matter. I'm going to give you my apostolic uh, uh, command as it relates to the doctrine. Does that make sense there, what he's doing there? So he's not simply saying, some of the things I'm saying are authoritative because they come from Jesus. Some of them aren't. He's simply saying, some of the things Jesus said in his earthly ministry, there are other things that Jesus didn't talk about. He was never asked this particular question. I'm being asked a question that Jesus wasn't asked, and so therefore, let me give you my apostolic, authoritative answer for this particular case. The danger of this sort of way of reading Scripture that is kind of a canon within a canon or red-letter Christianity where we kind of put Jesus and his words on a pedestal over Paul and his words. Obviously, all of us know Jesus is over Paul, but when it relates to our doctrine of Scripture, the words that we have of Jesus and the words that Paul writes to us are both going to be inspired by the same Spirit. So what we're actually doing uh, whenever we divide Scripture in this way is we're actually dividing God himself. We're putting Jesus against the Spirit or something like uh, that. And so we don't want to read the Scripture in that way. There is no canon within the canon. The whole thing is authoritative uh, to us. Let's talk a little bit as we uh, begin to uh, conclude here just about how history itself is telling the story of authority. History itself is telling the story of authority. Think back to the garden. Think back to the garden of Eden. What's the very first sin? The very first sin, the eating of the fruit, which is denial of what? The word of God, the command of God. The very first sin is in essence a denial of God's ability to command, to control us. It's a denial of God's authority. That's what sin is. It's saying, did God really say? Or it's saying, I don't care if God really did say that. I'm not listening. I'm not under his authority. Homosexuality, greed, lust, divorce, pride, all of these are founded upon the same premise, which is that God's word is not good, not authoritative, that question, did God really say, that lingers in the very air that we breathe today. What's the issue that Moses and Pharaoh, you read the Exodus account, what's the issue that Moses and Pharaoh are arguing over? What does Pharaoh say to Moses over and over and over? Who is this Yahweh that I should listen to him? How does he have authority to, to compel or control me? He's not my God. My God is Ra, or my God is... Uh, the God of the frogs or the God of the Nile or whatever it might be. Who's Yahweh? He's not authority over me. What's the question in the wilderness? The question of entering the promised land. Does God have the right to command Israel to enter in and the might to defeat the Canaanites? What about the prophets? Does God have authority to call his people to be holy and distinct? We've been in the book of Mark for the past year. Uh, a little over the past year and so forth, and over and over and over, Jesus has asked this question, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you calm the sea? By what authority do you cast out demons? By what authority 
Do you forgive sins? Over and over and over. Actually, that word, the Greek word, exousia, by what authority are you doing these things? That's the main question that the religious elite are asking uh, him because the essence of sin is autonomy. The essence of sin is uh, the exaltation of self. It's the rejection of God's authority in the attempt by us to put ourselves in the place of authority, which is autonomy, the idea that we should ourselves be our own law. But it ends up that we create a situation kind of like Judges. You remember the book of Judges? What's that phrase that recurs a number of times in the book of Judges? In that day, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you read the book of Judges, and you don't come off reading the book of Judges and say, man, that was a great time to live. You read the book of Judges, and you see struggle. You see strife. You see enmity. You you don't see the flourishing and prosperity of Israel. You see a country that is floundering and on the, the edge of being completely unraveled as they're lacking revelation, they're lacking uh, authority, and so forth. This is why we need authority from uh, without ourselves so that we're not left in a situation like judges. There's no king and everybody does what's right. So I want to end by talking about the purpose of authority, and then I'll have Zach come up and we'll do some questions. Given the fact that we have these negative connotations of authority, Uh, by virtue of the fact that we have negative experiences and by virtue of the fact that we are uh, still sinners uh, to some degree, still struggle with the residue of sin, by virtue of the fact that we have these negative connotations of authority, let's attempt to redeem uh, authority. There are a number of passages that talk about the purpose of authority in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So when Paul, if you ask Paul the question, why do you have authority? Why do you have apostolic authority? His answer is, I have it for building you up, not for destroying you. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Again, the purpose of authority is to build up, not to tear down. Parents know this, right? Yesterday I'm, I'm uh, playing with Larkin and so forth and nearly constantly when we're playing, she's trying to grab things that I know would not be good for her in the long run. She's trying to grab things that she can swallow, potentially choke on, or she's trying to grab something that would be much too heavy for her and fall on her and hurt her and so forth. And so I'm pulling her away from those things. Am I doing that because I don't love her? No, I'm doing that because I do love her. Right? I'm doing that in order to build her up, not to destroy her. That's the purpose of authority. That's the way that God exercises his authority toward us. Authority has this sort of negative connotation in our uh, hearts and minds, but authority is actually a good thing. Authority is the thing that creates, it redeems, it saves, it sanctifies, it encourages, it comforts, and on and on. I I was reading the other day um, uh, something by C.S. Lewis, and he used this analogy, and and I just want to end with this analogy uh, of authority. Uh, He gave an illustration. He said, suppose you're walking a dog, 
and you have that dog on a leash. And, uh, and so as you're walking the dog on the leash, you come to some sort of lamppost or something like that. And uh, as tends to be the case, you walk on this side, and which side does the dog walk on? The other side, right? So now the dog's on this side, you're on this side, you got a leash right here. What does the dog want to do? The dog wants to move forward, right? The only way that it can move forward is if you do what? Pull it backwards, right? Now in its mind, because it's a dog, is it thinking you're trying to help it move forward? No, it just feels it being tugged backwards, that's all it feels. It feels like you are against its joy, against its forward momentum, against its progress, and so forth. But really, you understand the only way that it can move forward is to be pulled backwards. That's what God's word is doing in exercising authority over our lives. It feels at times like he's pulling us backwards. He's pulling us away from pleasure. He's pulling us away from joy. He's pulling us away from happiness. He's pulling us away from life, and so forth. But if we could simply recognize in that moment when we feel that, we're feeling with the same sort of mindset as that dog, God is not attempting to keep us from those things. He's attempting, uh, attempting to lead us toward all of those things uh, and more. That's the way that God exercises his authority in our lives. That's the way that scripture exercises authority uh, in our lives. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll have... Zach, come up. He will magically appear on the stage when we finish. <coughs> Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that it is good and sufficient and uh, inerrant, and it is authoritative, Lord. And, uh, and so I pray that as we, um, over the uh, next weeks and months, as we uh, consider uh, more fully how to interpret it, Lord, that uh, these might not just be academic exercises, but might be profoundly practical for us as we seek to allow the authority of Scripture to, um, uh, to control and compel and command us in all areas of our life that we might look more like your Son. And so uh, bless us as we uh, continue to think through these things through questions and answers and as we continue to uh, go into uh, worship this morning and consider your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.